Hi. In our last episode, I talked about all of the different forest paths you find when you're walking in the hills and how they can be bewildering, how they can shift year by year, or sometimes they turn out to be decoy paths, leading you yet further down into the unknown. And though here maybe I'm belaboring the metaphor, but <clears throat> doing this research, sometimes you start to feel like you're losing the forest through the trees. And while I've been in the hills for a long time, I am no native. So please bear with me as I attempt to guide you up and down the hills for the next few decades. And what I'm kind of trying to get out here is there's a lot of different paths we can choose for our story. I'm going to try and keep us on the, the most important ones, I guess. And first I want to tell another story from these narrow trails. <clears throat> there was once a woman diligently tending to her fields. As the sun began to set, she noticed the other villagers had left back to the village. She started to hurry home through the thick forest along the narrow path. There she saw a child lying on the floor crying. Child! What's the matter? It's getting dark. You must return home. I'll take you to your family. She approached the child and picked him up from behind. As his head rolled back, it revealed an empty face. No eyes, nose or mouth. The woman screamed and dropped the child. She hurriedly ran back towards the village. She could see another woman ahead of her, another villager coming back from the rice fields, she presumed. Sister, sister, I just had a terrifying encounter, she yelled. As the woman turned around, she saw again an empty face. No eyes, nose or mouth. The woman froze in fear, she had nowhere to run. Behind her lay the faceless child and ahead of her, the faceless woman. These paths can be treacherous friends, full of spirits and ghosts. Don't stay out in the fields as the sun starts to set. Where we left off in the last episode, the Communist Party Burma had just started its insurgency in the lowlands, beginning their journey into the eventual descent that would be that of an ethno-narco state. And while I've been compiling research for this series, these complex changes of fortune and bizarre twists have been a reoccurring theme. I can't help but feel a bit like the Zomia nerds were onto something after all. The hills do seem to have this strange effect. And in the intro of the last episode, I talked about the ghost doctor's eerie, unexplained shag and may eye and his haunting stare. And these conditions, be they economic, social, geographic or supernatural, certainly make for strange results. So in today's episode, we're going to follow the rise of some of the key protagonists, such as the Communist Party Burma, the Royalist Lao narco generals, and the independent warlords. 
We're also going to chart the establishment of the numerous ethnic armed groups in the area who would go on to become narco-traffickers and would-be state builders. But for now, I think we ought to keep up with the KMT. find ourselves back in Burma, where we'll be staying for the majority of this episode. The Kuomintang cross-border raids into China are becoming increasingly fruitless, and they're gradually splintering while turning their attention more and more towards the lucrative opium markets. This shouldn't necessarily come as a surprise, as the KMT were by no means a unified national army to begin with. Rather, they were a huge coalition in the case of the leadership, landlords and warlords, uh, with the subordinates being anybody anti-communist enough to pick up a gun and fight, or more likely, unfortunate peasants picked up by their landlords or local strongmen and pressed into service. So these increasingly splintering KMT remnants started recruiting out of the local population they were occupying, much like they had done back in China. Here it was often groups like the Laohu and the Shan. Intermarriage was also common, and over time a second generation of KMT was birthed, a direct product of their hill environment, half hill, half Chinese in most cases. Washington, Taipei and Bangkok maintained a good relationship with the scattering KMT during this process. It's also important to recognize that while some elements of the KMT were being absorbed solely into the narco elements of the hills, others maintained a proxy relationship with the aforementioned foreign powers under the guise of anti-communism. At this point, though, we're still talking 1950s, early 1950s really, opium production was still nowhere near the heights it would eventually reach, and production in the rest of the hills was still relatively low and controlled by these far smaller warlords a system that had been in place for decades. During this period, political instability in Burma was slowly ratcheting up. In Rangoon, the capital, Prime Minister Unu pursued a non-aligned movement style of domestic and international policy. That is to say, a kind of highly compromised form of self-described socialism. And I think we need to remember the word socialism has meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people throughout the 20th century. And I think with Unu, ideologically speaking, we can compare him to the likes of Nehru or Sukarno. However, the social and political conditions he found himself in were rather different. The Communist Party Burma eventually split in two, with one side pursuing a more parliamentary strategy and the other choosing the Maoist guerrilla path. The position of the Maoist wing was becoming increasingly untenable in Burma, with many of their forces falling apart in the jungle. 
1951, the decision was taken to send a handful of cadres on foot into Yunnan to make contact with the People's Republic of China in the hope of aid and a base for re-establishing themselves in Burma, which is kind of ironic. I mean, I know it's not many people, but but given what was just happened with the KMT, you know, anyway. So the Chinese were unwilling to ruin their good relationship with UNU. And I think it's a common trait in the communist post-World War II world, which is this kind of genuine respect for the non-aligned movement on behalf of the you know, larger communist powers. So instead of arming the would-be guerrillas, they sent them for ideological and military training in Sichuan. Over time, more cadres would arrive in China the departure of these prominent members and the difficulty with communicating back home had the party on the verge of collapse. Though their fortunes would change in 1962, and we'll get there soon. But first, in 1960, Unu travels to China to discuss the ongoing KMT issue. There he strikes a deal with the People's Republic to organise a joint assault on the KMT positions in the hills in which the Chinese army were allowed to fight inside of Burma as much as 20 kilometers deep into the country along a 300 kilometer stretch of border. The goal of both sides was to eradicate the KMT entirely. By this point, the KMT could only muster around 10,000 organized troops. However, remember what we talked about in the last episode about defending positions in the hills? The KMT strategy was to avoid heavy fighting through tactical retreats into the forest. If that became impossible, they would entrench in various, you know, tactically placed strongholds on high ground. And then should they become surrounded, they had these guerrilla teams, these like guerrilla strike force teams that would flank and ambush the assaulting uh, People's Liberation Army or Burmese Army. It was very clever. And uh, these kind of tactics are still in use today. And so PLA forces, uh, Chinese forces, were really shockingly ineffective. Uh, while they killed and captured a good deal of KMT, the vast majority were able to flee eastwards towards the Lao-Thai border. And remember, at this point, Laos still has this reactionary monarchy. And, <clears throat> and also remember how friendly the Thais are with the KMT. So I think the failures for the PLA, uh, for the Chinese army, it's, it's, it's not that surprising. A lot of the soldiers had no battle experience and they weren't at all used to the tough terrain in the hills. Um, whereas the KMT had had the past decade or so to kind of really dig in and get acquainted and recruit from the local populations as well. So. This was not, I mean, it was a defeat, but it was also a tactical withdrawal. You know, the KMT's organization structures had been hit hard by the forced relocation. And that is to say this pushing of them down towards the Thai-Lao border. We start seeing at this point an increasing splintering of the KMT's army with certain brigades falling out of Taipei's control almost entirely. So this tactic of withdrawal will absolutely be a reoccurring theme for us. These 
armies ducking and dodging one another using these invisible national ba like uh, boundaries or borders to slip away out of reach before regrouping and appearing back out of the forest. So earlier I said a bit of a magic word, one which I probably should have talked about earlier, and that's Lao. And that's right, we didn't forget you. Indeed, Hao Wao Lao Tai Tuai, the third piece of our supposedly golden triangle. The former French colony post-independence was a monarchical state. On the face, it claimed to be a constitutional monarchy, however, one which just so happened to have a prince as a prime minister. There are also two little introductory points I want to drop about Lao. First of all, it is by far the most mountainous state in the region. There are no extensive valley plains other than the kind of enclave around Savannakhet, far to the south of the hill region that we're concerned of. And the vast north of the country is essentially a uh, continuous mountain range stretching all the way to Nepal so again topography is an important part of our story and the other key point for me is Laos and Thailand they're very much cousin states you know and at the time had close political connections even sharing members of the respective royal families so Thailand's predecessor state, Siam, had held Laos as a vassal state until the colonial French showed up nearly a century earlier. I think it's also important to note that this Thai-Lao relationship is by no means a two-way street. Like I said, Laos was a vassal state, one which was treated pretty contemptuously. The Lao people of the area and their cousins in Isan can trace their subjugations at the hands of Bangkok all the way back to 18 to the 1820s, when Wienjiang Vientiane rebelled against their Siamese lords. Vientiane was put to the sword. Its inhabitants forced down country in a mass population transfer into the Isan lowlands. The Isan region, or the Korad Plateau, was a large expense of land that for Bangkok was considered unproductive. It was swampy in the wet season and arid in the dry season, prone to flooding and difficult to farm. Those Lao people were pressed into corvée labour, putting it to productive use, dredging canals, building levees and raising embankments, before being forcibly settled there to farm as serfs. This was mass slavery at the hands of the Siamese, and still today Lao is an important source for cheap migrant, often subaltern labour in Thailand, as well as Burma and Cambodia. The point is, among the Thai elite, there's always been this sense of ownership over Lao, which, following the instability of the French imperialists post-World War II, only intensified. ดูบักสีดาเพราะหัวซานั้นไม่สนใจหน้าเป็นเหมือนคือหน้าสดใสอยากไล่ไปว่าหน้ารำคาญไม่ได้เรื่องพวกเป็นตาสิแตกตาแ
the Lao and Thai languages are almost fairly mutually understandable if you uh, open your mind a little bit anyway. Some, something like French and Italian. And indeed the Isan language spoken by the descendants of that population transfer in the northeast and to a lesser extent Kamuing language spoken in the majority of the north of Thailand, one could argue, have far more in common with Lao than with Thai. Having said that, by the 1950s, state-building efforts in Laos were well behind that of Thailand. There are no linguistic demographic studies for the period around independence. However, we can safely say that first language Lao speakers were below 50%. And on a quick side note here, I am referencing linguistic demographics rather than ethnic. And as we've said before, clear lines between ethnicity can be far more complex than numbers on a census would indicate, particularly in the hills. And for me, looking at linguistics, it's more helpful, particularly for this area, as it not only gives us a good sense of population breakdown through ethnic lines, but also indicates more clearly how absorbed certain minority groups are into the state. So, for example, a Hmong person may live in the capital, Vientiane, Vientiane, and speak Lao as their primary language, while still identifying ethnically as Hmong. However, the world of that Hmong person would be completely different from another Hmong person who lives out in the village, you know, who speaks Hmong as their primary language in their everyday life. What I'm saying here is that language gives us a far more clear politicized insight into the demographics than a clumsy ethno-based analysis. And if you'll recall in the last episode, I gave the example of a friend of mine who simultaneously considers herself Thai, Khmuang and Yom. Her native language spoken at home is Yom, in the town is Khmuang and in the city is Thai, right? And her father doesn't speak Thai, and her not-too-distant ancestors may not have spoken Kamuing. In this example, we can see the process of what many call, in vulgar terms, the development of the state, in this case around a centralised single language. It's probable, given Thailand's history of ethno-nationalist policies, that on a census question, she or her family maybe her father, may identify ethnically as Thai, while listing their first language as Yom. Does this make sense? Can you see why we're going on this detour down this ethno-linguistic path? Yeah, okay. We're talking about the state, you know, and how, how developed the state is in vulgar terms. And for me, the best way to look at that is via linguistics. That's what I'm saying. Let's put this methodology section to bed then and get on with it. Because what I'm saying is that most people in Lao didn't speak Lao as a primary language at the time. This tells us that it wasn't a very centralized state or in the you know more vulgar terms, it was underdeveloped or undeveloped. What this means in practice is that the reach of Vientiane didn't extend particularly far. Indeed, along the western border, the majority of the people are Hmong, and consider that for when, let's say, the KMT show up in that remote region. Something else to remember is that 
Laos, unlike Thailand, shares a land border with China. So while the Kingdom of Laos was technically non-aligned in the Cold War, the reality was far from it. In the 1950s, the communist Pathet Lao insurgency is beginning, and the Thais, along with the CIA, are covertly stepping in with weapons, aid and logistical support on behalf of the Lao monarchy. In fact, Thailand sent significant ground forces into Laos, though it's unclear exactly how many, it's somewhere in the tens of thousands. Some were highly trained troops, while others were mercenaries, and from what I can piece together, these mercenaries developed into those far-right paramilitaries which would be used to massacre students, labour and peasant organisers in the coming decades. Actually, this part of the story is little known in Thailand, it's been pretty deeply buried, and it's something... And it's something I'm going to try looking into for a future episode or different series, maybe. Anyway, for now, here I'm going to read from, literally, this is from, like, this is a really weird website. It's literally the CIA's own website, and it's their public history department magazine, the Center for Studies on Intelligence. And it's kind of wild that their people put this shit out there. Uh, when a lot of Thai people have no idea this ever happened. And, and I know this is a limited hangout, you know, it's directly from the CIA, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little extract. In order to conduct a successful and plausibly deniable war in Laos, the United States required a reliable regional partner. Thailand's strongly anti-communist leaders, Prime Minister Sarit in particular, were understandably concerned by the expansion of Soviet and Chinese influence. President Kennedy's approval of National Security Action Memorandum I don't know, in 1961 was a bold use of his covert action authorities and created a watershed moment for U.S. Thai paramilitary cooperation in supposedly neutral Laos. The president directed high-priority negotiations with Prime Minister Sarit, uh, Thai Prime Minister Sarit, that is, for for immediate availability of up to four 105 millimeter batteries, Thai soldiers, equipment and supplies for six cannons in each battery for deployment into Laos. Sarit, who concurrently held the rank of Field Marshal of the Thai Army, approved the request and thereby set in motion a more than 12 year long covert relationship of the CIA and a joint Thai military and police organization known as Headquarters 333. The placement in Laos of regular Royal Thai Army artillery units later substantially expanded with Thai volunteers placed into CIA-controlled special guerrilla units. This would be one of the most important aspects of US-Thai security cooperation. By 1971, the movement of these soldiers and the police into Laos would represent the greatest deployment of Thai expeditionary forces since World War II. Fuck. Fuck these guys, man. Anyway, during this period, we also see the rise of Vang Pao, a Hmong general in the Royal Lao Army, who had worked his way up after fighting for the French against Vietnamese anti-imperialists. Vang saw himself as the leader of the largely disunited Hmong people. As such, he was a major asset both to Lao royalists and the CIA for his ability to organize Hmong troops into what would become known in English as the Secret Army, the major US proxy force in Laos, which included those 
Thai people that we read about before. Remember, unlike those lowland Lao and Thai people, the Hmong were hill natives, making them a particularly effective fighting force. The secret army were not just Hmong, though, which, as it's often kind of thought about, you know. There were lots of other ethnic minorities, regular Lao people, and Thai wink-wink volunteers. There was, of course, also the presence of US Special Forces that engaged in on-the-ground fighting. And this is where we see Air America really step up its game, basically acting as like the Air Force for the secret army. But we're going to specifically focus on that one in the next episode. You know, just comparing US involvement in Laos to Vietnam, it kind of seems like what they did in Laos is what they really would have rather done in Vietnam. So like instead of having this huge public messy shit show where you have to draft all of these unwilling American kids to go and fight, you do this far more covert operation, which is essentially as bloody and as brutal, but doesn't come with the international or like media attention that the Vietnam invasion did. And I kind of suspect that having such a close ally next door like Thailand, you know, just neighboring there, really facilitated that. So it's 1961 in our timeline, and we haven't even touched on the ethnic insurgencies in Burma yet. So the next year is going to be a busy one, perhaps the most important in our whole story. Let's, let's, let's just get into it. I think, as I mentioned earlier, you know, there's a lot of paths in the hills. But let's not stray too far, of course, on any of those tempting tangents. So, as I'm sure you know, the specter of communism in Southeast Asia was considered a very real threat. How real that threat really was is still up for question, really. <laughs> Uh, nonetheless, the perceived threat was enough to justify the coup that took place against Old Unu in 1962 by the Burmese military, led by General Ne Win. This coup came with far harsher crackdowns on civil and political liberties than had been in the case under any previous government in Burma since independence. Ne Win perceived the state to be under two specific threats the communists and the ethnic minority groups, who, in his estimation, threatened to tear the country apart. Known leftists were rounded up and arrested, along with ethnic minority leaders. The students were the first to protest, and in an eerie echo of things to come in Thailand, troops were sent into Rangoon University to crush it, 
where they opened fire onto the demonstrators. Unofficial estimates put the death toll in the hundreds, and so began an exodus of the surviving, more radical intellectual students to the remnants of the domestic Communist Party Burma, hiding out in the Pegu Yuma Mountains in the middle of the country. Next came the ethnic minorities, who had been burnt by the state a decade and a half earlier. UNU had torn up the federalization agreement, but Nguyen took it a significant step further, banning minority languages and cultural practices. Several ethnic groups in our hilllands had already formed small community defense groups, while other largely ethnic-based militias were organized around the opium industry. However, they posed little threat to the state, until the coup that is. Vast numbers of ethnic minorities who had for decades dominated the Burmese military defected into what became known as the armed ethnic organizations, such as the Kachin Independence Army, Mon Liberation Army, Shan State Army, Kareni Army, Pa'or National Army, and Karen National Union, as well as the Communist Party. Some ethnic minority groups also formed their own communist forces, adopting a Maoist position, such as the Communist Party of Arakan and the new Democratic Army in Kachin. Ironically, Ne Win's coup had created the exact conditions that he had imagined existed before the coup. I mean, perhaps this was no accident, but maybe it's not for me to say. We've actually done two episodes focusing on, on this whole saga. I think it was episodes, just a sec, 14 and 33. So, And one key knock-on effect from the formation of these independence movements would be them jockeying with one another and the existing powers within the existing opium market in the hills. The same year in Laos, the Battle of Luang Nampa began in the far northwest of the country, where the China-Burma border met. It was a slow-motion battle that would last well over a year. The Petet Lao communists and their North Vietnamese allies dug in with Chinese support, both of which included battle-hardened veterans of campaigns like Dien Bien Phu, while the Royal Lao government poured troops into the area along with the KMT remnants and American Special Forces. Much like Dien Bien Phu, it was a fucking disaster. And we've said a few times now, you know, you don't want to be the assaulting army in the hills. So particularly for this Lao section of our story, we're really going to need to do a deep dive on the CIA. And I think the best way to do this is to run a parallel history of the CIA in the region for the next episode, because... They were fucking everywhere this whole time, <laughs> particularly in Laos and Thailand. But this quite nicely connects to our next point. So, so you've got all these new armed groups popping up and spreading into the hills. And to fight a successful insurgency, you're going to need a bit of bank. So they had the supply figured out, right? They could grow poppies. But what about the demand, you know, in that market? What was it that made the opium boom? And then I wrote here, cue the overused 60s rock music. <laughs> so it's going to be like... Yeah, there must be 
Floodgates have opened, man. The minions of the great Satan are flooding into Nam, man. It's 1962, and there's only 10,000 troops in Vietnam. But by 1968, there are half a million. And you know what makes those long days and nights in the shit pass a whole lot faster? It's okay. Okay, Okay, so we have the demand, but how does the supply actually work, logistically speaking? Well, so far, I think I may have given the impression that the KMT is really running the show when it comes to producing opium. But it's a fair bit more complicated than that. So poppy fields were becoming an increasingly common sight in the more northern Kachin and Shan states of Burma while the demand from Yunnan was decreasing due to the anti-opium policies of the communists in the People's Republic of China. So the produce has to move south into Thailand and Vietnam. Thailand for the ports and Vietnam for the GIs and also the ports. The role of the KMT here was less the production and refinement but rather the transport of the goods. They controlled the major caravan routes with opium usually carried on the backs of mules along the muddy hill paths. The KMT would charge other groups for moving the opium, usually calling it protection, you know, like mafia style. The Burmese military was still a pretty small player at this point, unable to project force so deep into the hills. If they were encountered though, you know, a small group manning a checkpoint, it was fairly easy to pay off whoever was in charge. Well, the guys managing the fields were these kind of small-time gangs who kind of had an almost feudal relationship or serf and lord relationship, like I talked about before with the farmers. So they would protect the farmers and the fields, and in return, they would move the product on and get a cut. Of course, this system varied tremendously from place to place and time to time, and this is a really broad outline. Also, I just want to point out that last week we spoke about the political economy in the hills, specifically the lack of private property. Well, that's out the fucking window now, and it's sad to see. Also bear in mind that these locals have been able to sustain themselves before, like sustain their own diets and their own way of life. They didn't need fucking cash or cash crops, you know, there's nothing to buy in the hills. Like when you're in remote areas of the hills, like even today, there's fucking nothing to spend your money on, you know, like seriously, even where I live now, like that's kind of the case. Even if you try, you know, like back in those days in those poppy villages, the pittance of money that came to the village after the crop was sold didn't go to schools or hospitals or whatever. It just went to guns. So what I'm saying is this economic system did not develop from the hills. It didn't need to. In fact, it's counterintuitive to the hills. It was only because of these outside forces that it came to define the hills. 
So I just wanted to dedicate a little section to one of the more curious characters of this era, the drug lord Olive, the legendary lesbian KMT affiliate who controlled the poppy lands of the Northern Triangle and Kokan for a decade. I'm just going to read from Bertel Lintner's Land of Jade on Olive, just a small section. So, the town of Tashwe Tang was best remembered for its most famous native child, the legendary warlord of Kokang, Olive Yang. While still in her early 20s, this decidedly masculine woman locally, <laughs> locally became known as Miss Hairy Legs. She came to command a private army of nearly 1,000 men. Old classmates I had met still remembered how their parents warned them not to play with this singularly tough little girl. Stay away from Olive, they had said. She's got a revolver in her school bag. Her formal education behind her, Olive no longer troubled to hide her gun. She was officially proclaimed... I don't know how to pronounce this. Sawa. I think it's a local thing. Chief of Kokang. And was seen in the cobbled streets of Tashwe Tang in a grey uniform with a Belgium army pistol on each hip. With the backing of the Guomindang, Olive's influence increased and she became the first warlord, or more exactly, war lady, to dispatch convoys of trucks laden with opium to the Thai border. Security was ensured by heavily armed Kokang troops, popularly referred to as Olive's boys. The money she earned from these ventures was used to arm and equip her army and to buy lavish gifts for her lover, the famous Burmese film actress Wa Wa Win Shui. Shui? Yeah. And then Bertel kind of skips over the scale of her realm, you know, which by most estimates puts her as the primary opium producer, uh, you know, like the one who controlled the fields, like the primary producer in the 1950s. And so Olive was arrested in the mid-60s, and she was later released and supposedly opened a Chinese restaurant uh, in Rangoon before becoming a nun. So other than it being like a kind of curious and fun case, I bring up Olive to demonstrate that the KMT didn't by any means have, you know, full run of the hills. As the 1950s moved on and the KMT became more dispersed, other groups and warlords like Olive started to compete with the KMT. Often they do this as allies, but they were still competing. And here we can see the larger mode of production develop from a slave or serf-based economy to more of an early feudal economy, with different fiefdoms having to compete against one another. So for this reason, the warlords actually have to start to offer their subjects something, the farmers or the soldiers, something whether it be quasi-government services like healthcare or schools, better wages, or even an ideology like ethnic liberation or even proletarian liberation. Nonetheless, every party involved here is in some way in the opium business at the end of the day. Uh, actually, my friend described it as narco-feudalism, and I quite like that. But just circling back to Lao briefly, and as we said earlier, the state isn't so developed in the traditional sense. And this makes taxation much harder to come by. So it's around the early 1960s that the Lao military really start getting involved in the opium market. And while the aforementioned Vang Pao was certainly involved, 
the main guy running the show was one Ratikon, the chief commander of the army. As the 60s rolled on, Ratikon oversaw several refineries inside of Laos, producing increasingly clean heroin favored by the American GIs, and also much easier to package and distribute. Even some of his product was clean enough to sell to the US military as morphine for the war effort. So you've got these micro warlords in Kachin and Shan states growing opium. They move it south with the help of the KMT, where it's sold on to generals in the Lao or Thai militaries, who then afford it protection to be moved to the distributors, either domestically or overseas. Everyone involved in this system seems pretty okay with it. You know, to be honest, everyone's getting rich, you know, other than the farmers, of course, and the workers along the route. So this is where it's going to start sounding like a mafia tale with the rise of a certain upstart capo in the system called Chang Shi Fu, also, well, later known as Kun Sa. I guess Kun Sa is the biggest name so far in our story. That is to say, the name that most people would recognize. The Escobar before Escobar, the richest and most notorious drug lord in the world at the time. And apparently at one point, the most wanted man in the world. He kind of taught the rest how it was to be done, you know? Um, anyway, let's take a little look at Shang Shifu and how he was eventually able to topple the KMT, well, kind of, it's complicated. I guess what we can call, he showed a lot of, you know, entrepreneurial vision, which like still today means trying to vertically integrate your market. So I'm not really sure what to call him. Let's, let's start with Chang Shifu um, and we'll call him Kun Sa when, when he changes his name, not to dead name him, but you know. So Chang was born in a village in northern Shan state, deep in poppy land, near Lashio, to a Chinese family. Supposedly, his mother was ethnically Shan, but after the death of both his parents, while he was still a young boy, he was raised by his Chinese grandfather, who was a village headman. As a boy, he received no formal education and was functionally illiterate his whole life. Now, as far as I can tell, his family were not KMT, but they were just Chinese people who 
I think it means like Mandarin speakers who have been living in Shan State for like a few generations. And nevertheless, when he was 15, uh, the KMT rolled into the hills. And here is kind of reports kind of differ on whether or not he joined the KMT or whether he fought against them. And either way, he was leading his own gang of young men by the time he was 16. Assumingly, thanks to his grandfather's status, he was able to rise up pretty quickly, developing his gang into a decently organized militia by the early 1960s, which was able to break away from the KMT after the Chinese PLA and Burma army did that big operation to push them out in 1961. Remember that? Yeah. As an independent, Chang had to carefully balance relationships with the KMT, the Burmese military, other militias, opium exporters, and also manage the development of various ethnic Shan liberation armies and militias that we spoke about earlier. Chang would fight with some and ally with others one year, only to do a 360 the next. He also maintained communication with several regional intelligence services, like those of Thailand, Laos, Burma and Taiwan, feeding them intelligence for favours. He was proving to be a pragmatic and ingenious operator. I think around this time he had figured out how the market worked and started dreaming of vertical integration. So you think about it from his perspective, right? You're stuck on this fucking hillside, guarding the poppy fields, risking your life, only to sell the product to the same guys you're guarding the fields from. I'm talking about KMT there. So what if you grew the poppies, man? What if this is one of those, one of those like inspiration bro podcast now? What if you grew the poppies? You, like, buy a bunch of mules and you move that shit down south by yourself, you know? At least that way you can get off the side of the fucking hill. So, Cheng Shifu's militia grew and grew, and there were even plenty of deserters from the KMT who went and joined the upcoming warlord. And by the 1960s, he was the biggest operator in Shan State. But the remaining KMT, who were still going, well increasingly rogue, still controlled the routes down south. And just to give a sense of where some of the KMT are at already by this point, I'm going to read from one of those State Department dickhead guys books about the region. I do find these books quite useful actually, as very one-sided accounts, particularly when they reveal tidbits like this. By early 1963, the third and fifth armies of the Kuomintang had little contact with the ROC authorities in Taipei. Whatever their military trappings and lingering ties to Taiwan, the KMT armies in North Thailand had become little more than uniformed bandits, smugglers and merchants. Officers and senior enlisteds were largely Han Chinese, with most of the rank and file drawn exclusively from local ethnic minorities. Extensive intermarriage between Han Chinese and local minorities added to the melting pot. A 1963 sampling of about 500-man KMT unit in Northern Thailand found 33 men from mainland China and 441 from Burma's Shan State. That was from Richard Michael Gibson's The Secret Army. So he says they're bandit smugglers and merchants. I would also certainly add mercenaries to that, but yeah, okay. 
It's actually quite funny because in all of these kind of books and reports from US government and CIA guys who were there at the time, one thing that comes across over and over again is kind of is just how low they regard, like how lowly they hold the KMT um, and the Lao royalist military too, actually. It's very funny. Like they really don't rate them. I mean, I'm sure a lot of these KMT guys were also on the old opium a little bit, no question. But you have these younger, hungrier, second generation guys like Chang Shifu coming up. And, you know, maybe they're not smoking up the supply too much. You know what I mean? And it's also clear that these US government guys kind of respected that, to be honest. Maybe it's an entrepreneurial spirit that they admired. But the point is, Chang was a real up-and-comer. And by 1967, he was ready to make his big play. So it's 1967. Chang Shifu is looking to grab a big piece of the opium market. He makes direct contact with the royal Lao government, with our guy Ratikan, who I mentioned earlier, the head of the royal Lao army. And they negotiate <clears throat> the sale of a record amount of opium, 16 tons. 16 tons. And just to put that into perspective, as far as I can find, the biggest ever state seizure of opium is 250 kg. So that's 16 tons. That's four mink whales of opium, you know. <laughs> I didn't know how else to compare the weight. So, so the deal is set. And the only thing that stands in the way of Shang-Chi Fu is the KMT and their protection money. Well, Chang figures he doesn't need KMT protection that he can move the product himself. So he gets a caravan together with 800 troops, and it was about a mile in length, setting out from northern Shan State, southeastwards towards Lao. Of course, the KMT caught wind of this and weren't going to allow such an audacious move, so they sent 700 troops after Chang's caravan. At the Mekong River, Chang's men hurriedly moved the cargo onto boats, with two KMT battalions approaching fast behind him. As soon as they disembarked on the other side of the river, now in Lao, they took up defensive positions at a sawmill near the bank, waiting for the KMT, who then crossed and set up offensive positions. The Royal Lao government got wind of what was about to happen and sent representatives to try and ease the standoff. Chang basically flat out refused to pay the KMT protection tax. And, you know, I mean, fair enough, like he did move it all the way there. So maybe you're expecting the two sides to kind of duke it out, have a firefight, winner walks away with the opium. Well, you would be wrong because in one of the wildest twists you could imagine, Ratikan decides, you know, fuck this, fuck these ragtag hill armies. I'm the commander of a real fucking country's military. So he sends out two warplanes to strafe Chang's position and they were totally unprepared for an aerial assault and Chang's guys took heavy casualties. And when the planes came back for a second assault, they called it a day and got the fuck out of Dodge. Opium be damned. The KMT, opportunistic as ever, of course, ran in to grab the product before quickly heading north to get the fuck out of town. They got about six miles upriver before Ratikan's ground troops surrounded them. 
Then, tail between their legs, they accepted basic payment for the usual protection fees, and Reticon essentially got his opium for free. Like, damn, that's that's a bold ass move. And this this is this is the the Lao government, like the actual government of Lao, royal Lao. Remember. Anyway. A humiliated KMT then crossed back into Thailand, where the Thais put them in trucks and escorted them back to their base in Mae Salong. The incident had been a fucking shit show for all involved, even Ratikon to an extent, just because it exposed what a wildly corrupt figure he was at the head of the Royal Lao Army. For the rest of the parties involved, the KMT had been humiliated, as had Chang Shifu. Chang, of course, had also lost a whole lot of money in the process, and his bid to outflank the KMT in the market had essentially completely failed. Meanwhile, the Thai and Lao states had to come to terms with the reality of this market, which they had quietly allowed to operate on the periphery of the state. It was getting out of hand. I mean, you can't really have irregular armies of several hundreds of narco-soldiers and aircrafts fighting like fighting it out over 16 tons of opium and without people getting wind of what's going on. So Taiwan too, for that matter, had to recognize what a, what a clusterfuck their supposed exiled insurgency was turning into. So let's leave it there for today. We will, of course, catch up with Shang Shifu a little further down the path as he becomes Kun Sa. But next episode, we're going to really focus on the CIA role in this whole messy fucking saga thank you very much for listening bye bye drifting on a sea of forgotten teardrops on a lifeboat